Well, good evening, everyone. It is uh, an honor to be with all of you. Um, we, we were joking before the service that the fastest way to get heresy into your church is to have the music guy preach. Um, and so, Lord willing, the Lord will protect me from that. Um, we have the, the privilege tonight of studying in Matthew 10, Jesus sending uh, the, out the 12 apostles. And um, we have here a foretaste of what will happen later in Matthew in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. So I want to start out just by reading the passage. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles were these, first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12 went out, instructing them, Sorry, these 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts. No bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it, and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly, I say to you, it will become more bearable on that day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death. And the father his child. And the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Amen. This is God's word, um, and we're thankful for it. Uh, let me pray one final time. Father, I pray um, that during this time of preaching that you would be glorified. I pray that you would be made much of. I pray that my own inadequacies and failures would not obstruct the glorious truths about you and about your son, Jesus Christ, in this word. Lord, help me to be the point, uh, sorry, the pointer and not the point, um, and help all of this to be for your glory and for the edification of your church. Amen. So the first thing we see in this passage is Jesus identifies and empowers the disciples. 
we see in verse 2, or sorry, verse 1, that Jesus gives them power over unclean spirits, diseases, and afflictions. And this is something that we haven't seen up to this point. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus executing this power, but we've not seen Jesus bestow this on another person. Additionally, we've seen Old Testament prophets have this same kind of power. Um, But in the person of Jesus Christ, we see a bestowing of this power and empowering of others. And this is something that identifies Jesus as God. Jesus is the only one who can bestow these kinds of miracles upon um, somebody who will perform them. The source of the power is Jesus Christ. So Jesus doesn't transfer the source of the power to the apostles, but merely gives them the ability to do these certain things. And this is a subtle distinction, but this is really, really important. I, I want to I read you um, why this is important. This is a bridge from a popular Christian song. When I lift my voice and shout, every wall comes crashing down. I have the authority Jesus has given me. When I open my mouth, miracles start breaking out. I have the authority Jesus has given me. You see, when we have a wrong view of where the power comes from, it's easy for us to say, Jesus has commanded us to do these things. Jesus has given us power to do these things. Therefore, we have the power. But there has to be a distinction there. Um, We are a vessel of Jesus's power. And the disciples here uh, called apostles, they are being vessels of Jesus's power. They are not given the ability to become the source of that power. The other thing that I think is... um, that distinguishes these two things is we have to ask whose agenda is driving the miracles here and who's, who benefits from these miracles. It is not the apostle's agenda that drives the miracles. It's Jesus's agenda because Jesus is the one who commands them to go out and perform them. And it's not the apostles who benefit. It is the people who are the recipients of those miracles and Jesus, because they're going out to prepare the way for Jesus. Um, We also see a parallel here to John the Baptist. The same way that John the Baptist was sent out before Jesus to proclaim and ready the people for Jesus' coming, now Jesus sends out a second wave of people. He sends out the apostles so that they can prepare the way. So what's the purpose of these miracles? Um, Well, for one, these are acts of mercy. These are acts to benefit God's people, to benefit the nation of Israel, a nation that has been afflicted with a lack of God's presence. They've been through 400 years without a a prophet in Israel up until John the Baptist. Additionally, the miracles and signs and wonders come to validate the gospel message. And so the apostles go and perform these works and people will say, nobody but God could have done this. So surely this person was sent by God. And we see this as a pattern in the Old Testament as well. I think of Elijah, uh, first of all, against the prophets of Baal. Elijah is thinking that there's no one in Israel who believes in Yahweh. And he challenges the prophets of Baal almost to a duel. They gather together and he says, if Yahweh is real, then this will be consumed. And if Baal is real, then your thing will be consumed. Um, And it is well established that Yahweh is the God in Israel. 
not only is the sacrifice consumed, but also the stones themselves. And so we see this as a pattern throughout the Old Testament, and we'll see it later on in the book of Acts, that miracles and special spiritual gifts come to validate the gospel message. Um, why is that particularly in this case? Well, the apostles have the Old Testament, and we see clear points to the gospel message and to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. However, the clarifying New Testament has not been written yet. And so we see in this instance in the book of Acts that these miracles accompany the gospel message as a placeholder for validating it before the New Testament is finished being written. The other thing that I find very interesting is, since Matthew is writing to the Jews, these 12 apostles are quote-unquote new patriarchs. That they're not replacing the 12 sons of Jacob, but they are fulfillments of the 12 sons of Jacob. And just as through Jacob's 12 sons came the 12 tribes of Israel, came God's chosen people, so the renewing of God's chosen people will come through these 12 men. Where Israel failed to be a light to the nations, Jesus commissioned these 12 disciples to restart that work. The other thing that I think is noticeable here is in verse 1, he calls them disciples. However, he will later on call them apostles. And so we see a shift that we see a pattern that Jesus has taught these men. They've been students and now they're being sent. And they'll come back and continue learning later on. But then after Jesus's life and ministry is finished, they'll be sent again. So here Jesus is preparing them for what's coming in the future. So he identifies the 12. Um, this is where Matthew calls them apostles. And this is the only time in the book of Matthew that they're referred to as apostles. Every other time referred to as disciples. Um, and Jesus identifies them with some clarification about background and who each person is. And so possibly in the early church, there was some, uh, some dispute or lack of clarity over who these people are. Um, Matthew wants to be abundantly clear this is who it is. This guy is this guy from this town, not this other person. He clarifies that. There are three sets of brothers, and only four are identified without extra material, which is interesting as well. Interestingly, several of the 12 are named after some of the original patriarchs. So Matthew is also called Levi, um, and he is identified in the other gospels as Levi. And Levi was the third oldest out of Jacob's sons. Simon is the same name as Simeon. Simeon was the second oldest son. Um, Jesus renames Simon to Peter. And this is an interesting shift. Simeon was second in line and should have been the one to inherit the birthright. After Reuben slept with his father's concubine, he was disinherited. However, Simeon and Levi were also um, not to be considered as the firstborn, as the primary heir, after they killed a village for abusing their sister. Peter and Simeon have similar tendencies. They have tendencies towards violence. Um, however, Jesus renames Peter and calls him to live above violence. 
I think of the hymn, Lead On, O King Eternal. It says, not through swords loud clashing or roll of stirring drums, but through deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. And so Jesus later on will reframe for Peter what the mission is. Because when Jesus is arrested, Peter pulls out a sword and starts whacking. And I'm going to read John chapter 18 where it references that. Then Simon Peter, this is when Jesus is being arrested, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in your sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Later in Matthew, Jesus also says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. And so as Jesus commissions the 12, um, we see that later on he will emphasize to Peter, this is not the way that the kingdom spreads. The kingdom is not an earthly political um, military kingdom, but it is a kingdom that spreads through other means. Um, Thaddeus is also called Judas elsewhere. And he is a different person from Judas Iscariot. Um, and Judas is the Greek name for Judah, which is very interesting to me. Um, we also have Judas Iscariot. So he makes sure to distinguish these two. Um, as, as we know, the apostles were very involved in the early church. Matthew wants to make sure that we know this is not the guy that betrayed Jesus. Um, <clears throat> what's also interesting is that <clears throat> in his day, Judah is also a hero and a villain. And I find this very interesting. At first, Judah betrays the one through whom salvation would come. He betrays Joseph. Joseph, who would eventually go to Egypt and have food so that the people of Israel wouldn't starve. But Judah later redeems himself. So Judah becomes a type of Judas and of Jesus, being the forefather of Jesus. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that when they go back to Egypt, Judah places his life in the place of Benjamin. So Judah there is a type of Jesus who was to come, who would place himself in our place. Judas, we know, lives up to the villain side of his name, but he doesn't live up to the hero side. So then we see Jesus send out the 12, and he gives them very specific instructions about where not to go. He says that they should only go to Israel, not to the Gentiles or the Samaritans. So th this is a surprising thing to us. We think, isn't the church for everyone? Shouldn't they be sent to all the nations? Shouldn't they be telling everyone about Jesus? But to the original audience, and especially to the apostles, this wouldn't have been a surprising command. Um, because God's people were the people of Israel. And Jesus' mission was first to the people of Israel. Though this makes it seem like the message is only for the Jews, Jesus is giving an opportunity for Israel to fulfill its original purpose, to be a light to the nations. The purpose of Israel was not to be God's only people. The purpose of Israel was to be God's people in such a way that others would look on and see them and would come to worship God. Jesus is waiting 
for the Jews' rejection, for the message to go to all the world. And the apostles, especially Paul, follow the pattern of sharing the gospel with the Jews first. Paul's pattern is so often, when he first arrives in a town, to first go to the synagogue. And this is, this is important because we know that God is not breaking his covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. Matthew also um, includes this for this purpose. One of the things that Matthew emphasizes is that Jesus is not somebody who is doing away with the old covenant, but somebody who is fulfilling it. He emphasizes how Jesus is the king. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to David. And this reminds the people of Israel that though at the time of, that this was written, many believers were Gentiles, that does not mean that God has not kept his covenant promises to Israel. Um, to, to, to go off on a little bit of a side note, we see in the Old Testament two different types of covenants. Um, we see both unconditional covenants, covenants made between a Lord and his respected subjects, and then we also see covenants made between a conqueror and a vassal. So we see somebody will conquer somebody and say, now that I've conquered you, I've won you in battle, you're going to do this, 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 and this. And we see that the Mosaic covenant is like that. God delivers Israel from Egypt. He wins them in warfare. And he says, I am your God who has delivered you from the nation of Egypt. You shall do this, 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 and this. However, in his other covenants, these are not covenants that come about through victory and warfare, but through a Lord voluntarily making a covenant with a respected subject. Um, and the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant and the Noahic covenant are these covenants. We know that God is fulfilling those covenants. Next, he tells the apostles what to do. He tells them to heal, to cast out demons, to cleanse lepers. This is, this is interesting as well. Lepers could be healed, but not cleansed. So the Old Testament makes a distinction that a leper could be healed of their leprosy, but still need to go through the cleansing. However, Jesus gives the apostles even the power to cleanse them, to make them ceremonial, ceremonially clean. He also tells them not to accept money. And it seems that this may have been a common practice in that day that people will say, hey, I got a great message. I got a great message. This is going to really benefit your life. Give me five bucks. And he tells them not to do that. Jesus emphasizes that the gospel is offered freely. The gospel is not offered in exchange for anything because it's a gospel for all people. This also makes it accessible to all people, even the people who are poor and don't have money. This is not a gospel you can buy into. And Christianity, for, for much of its history, especially the first two or three hundred years, was thought of as a religion of women and of slaves. Because it's, only, it's the only religion at the time where you didn't need to offer anything. You can come as you were and place your life in service of Jesus Christ. But you didn't have anything to bring with you. You didn't, have any, you didn't need to have anything that you could bring. 
He also tells them not to bring money for extra clothes or gear. And that, that's very interesting to me. You'd think these people are going out. We need to make sure they've got what they have. Um, Patrick and I have talked about him um, exploring opportunities to do overseas missions. And a lot of the preparation is we need to make sure you've got funding. We need to make sure you've got a place to stay. We need to make sure that you've got contacts over there. Jesus tells them not to do that. It's the exact opposite of what you'd expect. You'd expect Jesus to say, you're going to go on this long journey. So you're going to need this, this, and this. You're going to need this much food. You're going to need all of these things. But instead, he tells them not to bring those things. He tells them to instead trust that they'll be provided for. And this is a large step of faith. This is, this is a step of faith where there was not much of assurance of success. And though the apostles have in some way lived like this for some time, they've lived with Jesus who um, has said that he had no place to lay his head, this is a step of faith. They are going to go into towns and just see if someone will take them in. And this is a very trying thing. He also says that when they go to a town, when they go to a home, they should judge whether that home is worthy or not. Um, at, at first, this makes me wonder, what's the criteria for being a worthy or unworthy house? And what's also interesting is that they don't make this judgment at the beginning. They go and they go to the town, they go to the house and stay in the house and then judge whether or not it's worthy. And this makes me think that the worthy versus unworthy houses, he's judging that based on their reception to the gospel message. He's saying that these houses that receive you are worthy of your presence and they will have peace. He says that they will bless these houses. However, um, he tells them to leave places that do not accept the message. He tells them um, to make it clear that those places that do not accept the message are going to face condemnation. Jesus said that it would be better for the most wicked towns recorded here in the Bible, for Sodom and Gomorrah. It would be better for them on the day of judgment than it would be for the people who hear and reject the gospel message. That's a, that's a sobering thing. And it should challenge us because how many unbelieving friends do you know that have heard the gospel maybe once or twice? It's so easy to think, man, that'd be a really awkward conversation to share the gospel with that person. It'd be really uncomfortable. Maybe I'd lose that person as a friend. Maybe that person wouldn't want to hang out with me anymore. Maybe they would think badly of me. Maybe they'd become angry at me. Maybe they'd be confrontational. Maybe they would point out things in my life that are so imperfect, ways that I'm not living for Jesus. But brothers and sisters, we have to have a heart for these people because they will face condemnation. People that do not respond to the gospel will face condemnation. And at the same time, he includes Sodom and Gomorrah, cities that never heard the gospel and also perished. And so we need to be diligent about sharing the gospel, both with those who have heard and rejected and with those who have never heard. 
Jesus tells the apostles to make it abundantly clear that the rejection of the gospel message isn't merely a rejection of the messenger. It is rejecting the only hope of salvation for God's wrath. This is also a comfort for us when we share the gospel and people do not come to faith. We know that the blame for that does not rest on us. We know that we are not guilty regarding those people because they're not rejecting us. They're rejecting the gospel message. Shaking off of the sandals as they leave the villages is representing the fact that those villages are without excuse at the day of judgment. Third, Jesus tells the apostles what to expect. Greater knowledge for these people is going to mean greater responsibility. As he says that Sodom and Gomorrah will have a more bearable time in the judgment, he is saying that by sharing the gospel, there is an increased chance of salvation, but there's also an increased responsibility to believe. Um, it reminds me of Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. And Jesus is saying essentially the same thing, that as they have seen the miracles, as they've heard the power of the gospel message, there is a great responsibility with that. And with that, a great condemnation for rejecting that. He tells them to expect to be hunted, to expect danger. Um, it's, it's very possible traveling in small groups that they would encounter danger on the road. Roads between cities were often not safe. Robbers would camp out and find people traveling in small groups without a lot of people around and ambush them. And this is a danger. Jesus doesn't expect the apostles to go out into a zero-risk scenario. And by the way, he doesn't expect us to go out into a zero-risk scenario either. He tells them to be wise and blameless so that no one can accuse them of doing anything wrong. So as they encounter danger, he tells them to use wisdom. So even though he's told them not to bring material things to support themselves, he's asking them to support themselves with wisdom, to make smart choices, essentially. Um, and in this wisdom, this wisdom is purposed for the furthering of the gospel message. This isn't just about them being comfortable because he, Jesus has already told them to leave behind everything that could make them comfortable. But he tells them to be wise so that they'll be safe. And he tells them to be blameless so that no one can accuse them wrongly. Um, because it's no good if someone accuses or persecutes a Christian for doing the wrong thing. However, it is for God's glory and the advancement of the kingdom when Christians are persecuted for righteousness. He says that they'll also be legally prosecuted, that through legal avenues, there will be persecution brought against them. However, he tells them not to be afraid that even this is an opportunity to share the gospel. That being arrested and brought before a court is the perfect opportunity to tell them about the good news of Jesus Christ. 
even criminal prosecution, as absurd as this seems, is an opportunity to share the gospel. These commands, we don't see particular outworkings of this in Matthew. However, when we get to the book of Acts, you see the exact kinds of things that Jesus is talking about here. We see, for example, Peter and John being brought forth before the religious leaders in Jerusalem, being told not to preach the name of Jesus. And they even there declare the name of Jesus to those people. They say, you can decide what's right for you, but we can't do anything but proclaim the name of Jesus. Verse 21 then points out how the gospel is divisive. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel is divisive of the most unified people. Even the family unit, the core of all interaction in this day, is going to be ripped apart based on the gospel. Because the gospel always unifies people with Jesus or against Jesus. The gospel forces people to choose sides. And this is what he's talking about earlier. He's talking about how the rejection of the gospel is serious. Well, how serious is it? It's so serious that it would make you leave your family. It's so serious that it would make you leave everything you have in this life. He tells them that the cost is incredibly high. However, something for which the cost is incredibly high has a great reward. He says that hatred will come towards the believer, but salvation awaits those who are faithful. So, so why are they faithful? That's, that's an important question for us. Why are they faithful? I think one of the things that Jesus emphasizes throughout this passage is that the apostles need to have dependence on him. And even in this, even in being faithful, they must depend on him. We are not the ones who keep our salvation, but Jesus is. Jesus is the one who testifies that we are his children when we are accused. Those who have truly counted the cost of following Jesus will be faithful. Listen to what the apostle, or sorry, what the writer Luke writes in his gospel. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this is the man who began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not first sit down and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus is saying the cost of following him is everything. Yet this means that the reward will be more glorious than we could ever imagine. He compares following Jesus, Luke does, to a man building a tower and a man going to war. But how much more serious is it for those who are not able to give up everything to follow Jesus? How much more serious is that than an unfinished tower on a lost war? How much more serious is that? Finally, he tells them not to waste time in unreceptive towns since the time is short before Jesus comes. So now this, there's a lot of disagreement on based on eschatology. Um, I think that more than likely what he's saying is that after these 12 are sent out, Jesus is going to immediately go through these towns and visit these towns. However, this could also be a reference to the millennial kingdom, that these apostles are sent out to proclaim the gospel because the time is limited before Jesus' return, before judgment. So how do we apply this to our lives? How should this change the way we live day to day? First, I think this should impact our participation in missions. I think this should impact the way we think about the lost. We need to be constantly thinking about the lost and thinking about how they can be hearing the gospel. And this is a challenge for us both to be supporting people who are sharing the gospel and to be people that share the gospel. One of my professors says that anyone who knows enough of the gospel to believe it knows enough of it to share it. It's really easy for us to think, well, you know, I don't, I don't know all that much. I'm not a theologian. They're probably going to ask me all these questions that I'm not going to know the answers to. But what are we doing? We're not just answering people's questions. We are sharing the gospel. We are bringing the good news of salvation to people. And if we believe this message, then we should be sharing it. If we have learned the message, we should be sharing it. And this is the pattern Jesus establishes with his disciples. We see the chapters up to this, Jesus training up and teaching his disciples. And then after this, sending them out. And this should be a pattern for us in our lives and in our churches. We should be students of the word through reading the Bible, through studying, through daily being in meditation on the truths in God's word. And that should overflow into evangelism. That should overflow into other people hearing. And it also should take place through the natural things that happen in discipleship in the church. As we are discipled, as we are invested in, in the church, and as we invest in others, that results in the sending out, the sending out to people who have not heard the gospel message. And we need to have boldness to share the gospel. 
because it's not our message. It's, it's not our message. And it's really easy to go out and to share your testimony and say, oh, I've proclaimed the gospel. But the gospel isn't our individualized story. Now, our testimonies are important in sharing the gospel. Many people will ask, well, how did you come to know this? But what is central in evangelism is the gospel message. Not our own opinions, not our own experiences. Um, our own experiences never replace the gospel message. We also see a bitter truth in this passage that not every evangelist is truly converted. We see Judas Iscariot as one of the ones sent out, as one of the ones who is performing miracles, as one of the ones who is delivering people from demons. And yet he is not truly converted. We need to make sure that we keep the main thing the main thing. Keep the gospel central. And we need to examine ourselves that as we proclaim the gospel to others, we're also proclaiming it to ourselves. And we're also believing it ourselves and living lives that come along with that. And finally, we should understand the cost of following Jesus. We need to understand that it is not comfortable to follow Jesus. It's not convenient to follow Jesus. It requires us to give up all that we have. And yet, how rich a treasure lies in store. Not only in heaven, but in the fellowship that we will have with God the Father and God the Son and the Holy Spirit. This is well worth anything that we have to give up in this life. Have you truly given up everything to follow Jesus? Or is there something that's so precious to you that it would make you walk away? Oftentimes we don't, we don't think about this, but Jesus tells them that trials will come. And what happens when trials come? They expose whether or not we have counted the cost. They expose whether or not we're ready to follow Jesus for real. It's very easy to walk the Christian life. It's very easy to come to church to know all the right answers. It's very easy to look like a Christian. It's very easy to go out and evangelize. But when trials come, do we hold fast to Christ? Do we forsake all other things that would get in the way? This should be a challenge to us this evening. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your truth. I thank you that you have not left us in the dark, but you have revealed yourself through the person of Jesus Christ and you have commanded us to be agents in revealing yourself to the world. Thank you for this. We pray um, your blessing on this service. We pray that if anyone here has not come to know Jesus Christ, if anyone here has not truly counted the cost 
And if anyone here is not truly willing to give up all to follow Jesus, I pray that you would intervene in that person's life and that they would come to know you. Amen.